0: It's that time again, and this time we're actually up at like episode nineteen of the Development Hell podcast. So it is September sixteenth, two thousand and twelve. I know it's been a while, but uh, Ed's been off his meds. I've yep. been starting work at a new job, so we finally got our shit together to uh, record another episode. And this time out, we have a very special guest. Ed, why don't you introduce our guest?
1: Now I do. I have to. You do. Can he just start talking and then like? Uh- <coughs> then, And like people could wonder who okay so now it's Chris Shiflet, who's this guy who's done some stuff in PHP things with security and 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 other things of that nature and uh he and I've been and have been friends for a while and I, I I think you'd even describe yourself as friends with uh grumpy Chris um maybe I'm not sure
0: <laughs> well but, we'll see once we're done with this episode yeah
1: we'll see see how this goes right but uh and I also I work with uh chris at fictive kin
0: the best company ever
1: yes it's the greatest company in the world nothing bad ever happens and it's all great and it's gonna change the world right
2: well if we do some things right it might
1: yeah it's not going to but (laughs) um yeah no it's a cool place to work so um so yeah thanks for coming on chris i appreciate it yeah, thanks for having me. And uh Chris also we you know coming up in just a few weeks uh uh you and 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 Cameron uh you know what I actually don't know how to say my la- my boss's last name. It's Kozon. Not Coxon. <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> so, um Cameron Kozon, you he you and he uh uh organized Brooklyn Beta, which has been a very successful development and design conference in uh,
3: the best conference ever.
1: Yes, the best conference in the world. And that's coming up again at the beginning of October, right? Yep, October 10th, 11th, and 12th. Right. So, uh, and I'm sure uh, I've been told that we were trying to get Clint Eastwood to speak. <laughs> and Make sure you have an empty chair. Yeah, right. And a bunch of other cool people like that. So, uh, no, it's always, it's, it's been good the past couple of years, and I bet it's going to be just as cool. So, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep. So we had like a few, what we asked people to send us some questions? Yeah,
0: I I spoke with uh, earlier, I guess maybe last week, I spoke with Ed and said, why don't we try to do uh, an Ask Us Anything uh, edition of the podcast, mainly because it saves us from having to come up with topics since we usually think of everything. So uh, we got a few people to just send us some stuff on Twitter, and there's some interesting stuff. and. Other stuff I think we'll skip because I don't think anyone really wants to hear about the state of the Canadian soccer program or uh, uh, my thoughts on balancing work, family, and extracurricular activities. Although maybe we might talk on that. But we have a couple, I think, semi-interesting uh, things that we're going to talk about.
1: Yeah, I got to look at our notes. These are terrible. Check out the pirate pad. Yeah, these are, these are all terrible, terrible okay. questions. No, some of them are good. Um, yeah, let's go through a couple of these. Why don't we? It says here. Let, uh, okay. So I have this. Right. Do you want to do the first thing I listed or the things you wrote in your order?
0: We can do the first one. We can do your first one
1: there. Yeah. Okay. Somebody asked this today to the dev hell County. He said, what advice would you give for dealing with non-technical team members? So uh, Chris Shiflet, what advice would you give for dealing with non-technical team members? Also, I like the way it says dealing like it's a big pain.
3: Yeah. So. I mean that's I probably not the best way to meant. start it, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: right. I don't think that's how he meant it, but
3: yeah, right. <laughs> it, you know, the first thing I would do is tear the question apart a little bit. One is like the word "dealing" means you already have like kind of a bad attitude, and the other is like, you know, what do you mean by non-technical? Like what what are they doing? Yeah, that's
1: um, that's another question. Yeah, sure.
3: It's like you know, there are lots of roles uh, that aren't technical. Um, it could mean like designers. Um, it could mean you know like. A project manager uh, it could mean a manager, I guess uh it could mean like a product person, you know, I really don't know, so right
2: for all those I'm back things, I think oh thank, thank you welcome back
3: for all those things, I think there are slightly different answers um, and yeah, I mean, I guess if you're if you're asking like how do you deal with somebody, then you know not like that is the answer
1: <laughs> yeah, probably
3: um. <laughs>
1: I think that I I mean I think there's something uh I think we can we've all probably had occasional hopefully occasional bad experiences with um folks who I think the worst cases are when you feel like as a as a developer you feel like you're dealing with somebody and they don't really understand what's involved in your in your uh work and It's, I think there's, there's, it's uh, sometimes it's either it's difficult to articulate, like, oh, let's say, well, this is why this this is going to take like two weeks to do it instead of two days. Right. I mean, that's, you know, kind of the classic, like, well, they don't understand. They'll tell the client, oh, it's going to take like no time and it's going to take a lot longer. Like I, I, this guy was just a jerk. I didn't really want to, it wasn't a matter of communication. He was just an idiot. But like he, uh, one time I had a client who, uh, was just like, well, we need to get this done today and you need to do it. You need to add X, Y, Z or something. And I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that in this amount of time. I'll do what I can. Right. And then he called me at the end of the day. I was like, this wasn't done and you made me a liar. And so that was sort of not cool. Um, but that was different. That wasn't just, well, the guy doesn't really necessarily understand it. It's more like there's just a lot into it.
3: Um, I feel like I could be like a non-technical person and never make those like really obvious mistakes. Right. Uh, I mean, as, as you know, like, I mean, our careers are long enough where you and I have probably seen like the worst and the best of all kinds of different roles. Oh yeah. Um, but certainly like anyone who's, like interacting with some third party on your behalf, like it's really foolish of them to make up stuff and, and promise that to another party. Um, that just, that never goes well. If you're managing a project, there's a certain amount of estimation that be done by the people who are doing the work on that particular thing. Um, and then there's, you know, there's lots of other things that you need to do to manage those expectations externally in addition to not trying to estimate things that you're not working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people who are really good at that, um, you know, are just, they're just good. So those problems just don't come up.
0: Um, and I, I think, I think also that you can be non-technical, but understand enough about the technical work being done by the people around you to not come off like an ass hat when you're promising things. Cause yeah, that's the worst. Stand. um, the particular challenges that are faced while trying to implement the thing that they've either agreed to or pre-sold or promised without telling the people who need to do the work. I mean, I know lots of people who are pretty non-technical but are great project managers because they know enough to um, ask questions, like Chris said, of the people who need to do the work. The people who do the work have to be involved in that whole discussion about how long something's going to take and whether it actually can be accomplished or not.
1: I think that I think the big thing is it, with people who you ha, who are you're working with on your team who aren't don't necessarily do your job, but they you are interacting with them and they have to have some kind of understanding. Usually, it comes down to like, well, how long is this going to take, and what's going to be involved in doing this, and why would doing it this way be a bad idea as opposed to something else. I think that I think that your ability as a developer to communicate things and to parse things uh into a way that are down into a, a, a sort of a form that doesn't require a lot of technical knowledge to sort of get it i think i think really makes a big difference so your ability to say to break it down and say this is you know this is sort of how our processes work and we have to do this, and this is why it doesn't work this way. And um, being able to speak to somebody uh, and explain things without requiring them to like take a you know a bunch of classes and you know to to know what you're you know to to know how to do your job, but to explain sort of what's involved, um, I, I think that that makes a big difference. So I really think that the best the the best developers I've run into have always been good communicators as well. Um, yeah and
3: part of that's being like very mindful of vocabulary, because um, yes. there's a lot of stuff that you're familiar with because you know you speak this language all the time, um, and you know when you're communicating to some person like your goal is to be understood, so if you're failing at that, and it doesn't matter if you're right you're you're still not doing a good job communicating. so just being mindful of vocabulary sometimes can go a long ways, and you even see this in reverse. Uh, In fact, I would argue that you see it in reverse more often, which is that people that aren't technical try to adopt a technical vocabulary as if somehow that's going to like make them seem like they're more part of the the crowd or they're going to be more understood or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many people do you know that call a computer a hard drive or a CPU or some other word? Um, Whereas like most people I know that know what processors and drives are and stuff call a computer a computer because you know it's right. a computer or it's a laptop or something you know we just i think the more you understand about something the less you try to impress people with your vocabulary and that's like a really good position to just try to be in out of habit so that you don't have to pay as much of attention yeah i think
1: i think another side of that it, it made me think about when you talk about the vocabulary is that um Sort of computing in general is really, really complex and filled with tons and tons of little bits of information that if you don't, if one, if you don't know it, and two, I think you don't know it if you don't sort of have a passion for it. If you're not like constantly, if you're not really interested in it, you don't ever sort of learn it correctly. Um, As a consequence, I think that you have to remember that most people aren't going to understand like exactly what a lot of those terms mean. Um, and then, as sort of to go along with that, they don't know what the, a lot of those things mean, and they maybe are not hugely motivated to do that. I think that sometimes there's things like um you know well, if it's part of their career or something you're interacting with programmers all the time they're probably gonna they're probably gonna all you know learn stuff hopefully about that stuff. but I know in day to day existence, the amount of you know normal people who actually give a rat's ass about whether the box that's on their floor is called a hard drive or, you know, or that's the computer or what that is exactly. Well, they don't care. They're just picking a term that sort of sounds that, that that they pick up to, you know, to sort of assign to that. And it drives us nuts when it's not correct. Right. But to them, it doesn't really matter that much. And it's, it's not really a huge deal. Um, And also it, it i mean just computing is just overly complex for most people to to deal with anyway unless they're really interested in it. So i think i think um having some humility about that and not and not just um you know thinking they're stupid just because they're disinterested. I don't know maybe they are stupid, but it just because you happen to be really passionate and interested in this topic doesn't mean that other people are and there's probably lots of other things that you feel the exact same way about and i think when you understand that it really helps. Um, I think if you like i I always feel this way when I go and get my car worked on i don 't know i I know almost nothing about automobiles really I mean I guess I know very very basic notions about it, but really how it works i don 't really know, and I know that when I try to talk to the 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 service people. I'm probably using the wrong words and the way I describe the problems is kind of weird. And it's not exactly how they would describe it and things like that. So I'm kind of keenly aware that I really don't know what I'm talking about when, I, when I'm like that. And so it can be, and it can be frustrating because you're sort of at the mercy of this, you know, this person who does know and you hope that everything goes okay. And you hope that they're not just making stuff up because you really don't know any better. Um, so I think, I think if you kind of keep that in mind, I think it makes you think more about how do I explain stuff to somebody who doesn't have all that vocabulary and whether the stuff isn't just, they don't have the same, I've been thinking a lot about how people are people's brains really do lots of pattern matching and things that are supposedly intuitive to us could just be that we've encountered a lot of the same patterns in the past and other people don't necessarily have those same patterns. So, you know, We have a lot of these certain patterns about, like, what goes on and how we operate computers and how, you know, how web development works, the patterns we see in there and stuff like that. But most, the vast majority of people don't really necessarily have that. And they may have different kinds of patterns that they're used to. So figuring out, again, how to, like, kind of parse that stuff into things that they're going to recognize better or, you know, making the patterns simpler so that they can kind of pick them up more easily. I think thinking about that stuff a lot really helps. Um, and I don't know, I think something that can kind of help with that sort of thing is like, if you're the kind of person who doesn't mind talking to a few people about it, like maybe do like things like at your job, maybe do like, like a little lunch, uh, little uh, presentation or something. You just talk about some subject, right. You know, and then people who are interested in that could come, you know, listen to it. And you're like you as a speaker, you're going to learn and get better experience about the, as the person who's presenting, you're going to get good experience about how am I explaining stuff? Like, and is this getting across to people or not? You're going to pick up more of that. And it's going to make it... I think it's going to be a good way to sort of, uh, you know, people who are interested in it and want to learn about that stuff uh, have an opportunity to start interacting with you more, establishing those relationships, Uh, learning how they pick stuff up and how you do stuff and, and things like that. So... I'm babbling for a while, but did you yeah. drop your laptop? I don't know. Did he, me? No. Did you? Uh, no. Nope. I'm still here. All right. I think you punched your microphone.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, so no,
0: I'm I'm still here, still oh, listening, God. Thank listening God. to you. Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think what Chris said earlier also uh, is really key, and just the vocabulary is trying to find. i always I am always trying to find simpler ways to explain. Um, the things I do to non-technical people. And so, to me, that's always a challenge of saying, assuming that this person doesn't fully understand what it is that I do, explaining it in such a way that uh, I'm making it clear that I'm trying to explain to them and I'm not also, I'm not trying to make them feel dumb for not 100% understanding what it is that I do.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah this, this might be like a, a tangent, but I just want to mention this real quickly because it was very eye-opening for me. Um, only if you can, like, really try to stretch your powers of empathy um but do you guys remember it's probably been a couple of years now but there was uh there was a specific post on a blog i think it was read write web um and the, the post was about how facebook's trying to make this play for being the one true login because you know everywhere you can like connect with facebook or you can like log in to comment or whatever. In fact, Read, Write, Web was one of those blogs that did that for their own comment system. So you could like, connect with Facebook and you could comment there. and Your little photo was there and everything. So they, they blogged about that. It you know, got the regular amount of traffic and whatnot. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, suddenly traffic on that spiked massively. And like, more importantly, they had several thousand comments from really, really angry people. Um, and these comments were like really hard for them to make sense of at first because they were things like, you know, what is this? Where are my friends? Or like, Oh
0: yeah, yeah. It- I don't know what Chris is talking about. This time about when because they, that's when people discovered that people would open up their browser and type Facebook login into like the search mm-hmm. bar and it would redirect them and they would just click to go log in. And that story somehow ended up, up near the top as one of the top results for 12. Facebook login.
3: All right result and once people landed there there was the little connect with facebook thing so you did kind of log in and i think what strengthened it is when you see a bunch of other people like oh the new facebook design sucks you know where are my friends this is bullshit it makes you feel like yeah man it is bullshit so you comment too and it was like it was like this crazy like spike of like traffic and it was all you know very negative cuz people couldn't figure out what to do cuz they thought they were on facebook and couldn't find anything um but that was like you know I laughed like everyone else because it it was very funny to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but it was also like very eye opening because yeah, we hear you, okay, Chris. All right, cool. Um, it was very eye opening to me because oh. if you think about it, you know, like if using a computer is like not kind of like part of your daily routine, and like you know, maybe you go home and you you log into Facebook to like you know just see some photos and stuff from the people you know, family and friends, um, you know. What is a search engine and what's the location bar versus little search bar? Like, you know, what is the internet or Google or, you know, what are any of these things? What's a URL? There's a lot of like, it's pretty complicated stuff that we really take for granted. Um, And that, you know, I can't say that that particular story is like somehow like reshaped the way that I like try to communicate with people or design apps or anything like that. Um, But I have made a conscious effort to like try to put myself in other people's shoes and and try to not take things for granted as much
1: yeah i think i remember that because I, I actually wrote a blog post about it because i was kind of upset with how i felt people like especially like in the developer community lots or lots of you know in the it community a lot of people were like saying look at all these stupid assholes who don't know how to use computers and shit like that and i i felt like it was really a failure of um, a lot of things of, of of a lot of things and, and certainly yeah. one of those things is the application developers or the web developers is like well look if people can't figure out how to use this uh you know whose fault is that <laughs> right
0: i don't i don't know if it's i don't know if it's necessarily a problem of people not uh, figuring out how to use it i think it's more a uh, people uh, more um a case of um people finding different ways to figure out how to get to Facebook in ways that developers didn't anticipate yeah. when they build it. Cause I mean, it would never occur to me to, uh, to start up my computer and to log into Facebook. I would go and type Facebook login to go find it. It's like almost like a, uh, an accidental side effect of search engines uh, or the use of search engines being built right into the, um, location bar of most popular web browsers. Yep. So it's not intuitive to us because we're, we're, um, you know, we know the ins and outs of using a computer. So it never occurred to us that when I want to log in to Facebook, that I would type Facebook login. Most of us would just type, start typing Facebook and see that it's going to be auto completed for us and hit tab or, or enter or whatever. And boom, we go to Facebook and we log in. It never occurs to us that people are, are using a search engine to find the Facebook login page.
3: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Ed's yeah, probably heard me say this because it's a favorite saying of mine, but uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with pave the cow paths. Yeah. Um, I think it really resonates with me because I grew up in the middle of nowhere where there actually were a bunch of cows and they, they walk along the exact same little paths. And like cows are pretty you know, they're pretty big and fat. The cow paths are like super skinny. Um, and I was really fascinated by that as a kid because like these cows took the exact same route just wandering around what seemed like aimlessly to me um, among, you know, like many hundreds of acres of grass and stuff. Um, And they just never strayed from that. So, it gets really really like cow paths. Um, And you even see this with humans in like maybe public parks or something where like the nicely sculpted paths are like kind of inconvenient. So, people take a shortcut and like, you know, cut off the corner or something somewhere and that gets worn down. Um, and I really like this notion of pave the cow paths because it just means like observe the behavior that's happening and then try to accommodate that. Um, and it doesn't mean that's like, that has to be what you do a hundred percent of the time, but it's a nice rule of thumb to say that it's a lot easier to try to accommodate existing behavior than it is to try to change it. You know, so like, I kind of like Facebook's response to that whole, um, read, write web thing was, uh, in their words, they just SEO the hell out of their, uh, Facebook login page. And they, they became again, the top spot for that. So if you type <laughs> Facebook login now, in fact, I'm going to do it just cause I'm curious. Um, I bet you get a Facebook page again as the number one result. Yep, You get their login page. Right.
0: Mission accomplished.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> right on. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's, it's an important, I think it's an important, Lesson that you sort of remember as as a developer is that you have to. I think one of the things that really helped me was also if you have kids or you know kids, observing them interacting with stuff is helpful. Yeah. Um, Like one of the things that was really revelatory to me uh, when look at you
0: breaking out the big words. I know, right? Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. You've been reading books again, Ed? I've been (laughs)
1: doing book learning. Um, (laughs) The one of the things that, that. I remember when uh, my son started using a computer and like it was trying to figure out how to use a mouse. It, it, people will always talk about like, Oh, GUIs are into like window based GUIs are intuitive and mouse based things. They are not intuitive to human beings at all. You have to learn how to use a mouse and it is not natural and it is not intuitive. Oh yeah. Uh, that-
3: I remember watching someone, um, for the first time using a mouse with the, do you remember like the Windows start bar? It's probably still like this, but it, like, mm-hmm. it had hierarchy. Yep. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Like if you like accidentally like miss and like hover off the menu at some point, like all disappears and you it's miss terrible. all your work. Yep. And you're like trying to make this progress because you're trying to get to an app that's like three tiers deep. Yeah. And it's like, I watched someone struggle with that for like, you know, like three or four minutes, which felt like an eternity. Oh,
1: it's um, so painful.
3: It's like really eye opening
1: yeah um like hierarchical representations of stuff like that make sense if you are a developer and yeah. and they are intuitive to you if you are like I said I think intuition is really just established patterns you already have and that you've learned right so it's intuitive to us because we're comfortable with those kind of tree patterns well, if you're not that's why that's why like the file system is basically like a complete wasteland to the average user like and that's why you don't what you know, like like Apple has tried to make like if there are any like folders, they're just completely flat and like getting away from sort of folder systems, like only maybe making them like one level deep um it's because people don't like have you ever seen like a, a an average human being try to find an application like in the finder oh yeah, it's it you just say you're like, oh well they're like, well, how do I run this program so just go on the finder you get it. It, it's, it's, it is next to impossible to do that. It doesn't work. I mean, it's, and it's like, I, it, because it doesn't, it's, that is not, that doesn't match any existing concepts that they're going to be used to. So
3: what's funny about that is um, I've recently been recommending just as a, basically as a test, but because I think it's going to be a good solution. I've been recommending that people install Alfred. Oh yeah. And, right. And oh, get, I love Alfred. Get, getting used to hitting command space, like, that's a thing you just have to learn, and you tell them, you know, it's just a hump, you know, like, when you need to get something or find something, get used to hitting command space, and this little box type comes up, right. and you just type the name of the app you're going after. And I actually think, like, once they get over the learning curve of, like, command space, because, you know, if you forget that, and you're kind of, like, up to right. but once they get over that, it's actually really easy for them, and much easier than, you know, clicking around on the finder or whatever,
1: yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that like something like Spotlight was kind of an attempt at that. I mean, I guess back before I used Spotlight, I used like LaunchBar. Or I used uh QuickSilver, which are both sort of Alfred sort of like a, a Alfred's like a friendlier
3: QuickSilver. Yeah,
1: I think it is. Like I feel it's like I have friendly. to be a rocket scientist to use it. Right. I like it's got big it's like really big and, you know. Yep. Yeah, so I think it works well. Um QuickSilver was definitely oriented towards power users, but uh but yeah um i I think there's a lot to that, and i i I think that some concepts are harder to get at than others, and a big stuff like tree hierarchies are really hard, stuff like training your your brain to connect the way you move a mouse with interacting with the screen is not particularly easy um,
0: that's why I don't watch my kids use computers
1: because i I can't
0: resist wanting to dive in and show them the shortcut on how to do something. So
3: Yeah, you're like, like an SNL skit. Move.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, Oh, totally. Yeah.
3: Yep.
0: yeah. So I try to just, when my kids use the computer, I, I just say, if you have a problem, come and ask me and I will help. Otherwise, if daddy sits there watching you, he will be tempted just to do everything for you, just so that he doesn't have to observe, observe what he considers a painful um, process. So I just let them go and do, do stuff on the computer, and I come and help them when they have a problem. But for the most part, I just kind of leave them
1: alone to do it.
3: Someone on RC just said they have to sit on their hands when their kid uses the computer.
1: Yep. Oh, totally. I do that too. I just have to be like, I'm going to go in the other room.
0: <laughs> and just to make myself feel better, I, I I have a different computer for the kids to use, so I don't have to watch them uh, mangle their way through my unique setup on it my uh, on my laptop.
1: Keeps their malware
0: on the machine. <laughs> That's right. Keep your Windows virus over on the on the desktop in my uh, office, please.
1: So, uh, let's move on to uh next, let's do another question here. Um, what we got,
0: All right, you want to do, you want to do the node one?
1: Yeah, sure. I can. Okay. So,
0: so I'll talk a little bit. Cause this is kind of something I've yeah, been you might have more doing lately. Enough. So, um, I've recently, I mean, I've dabbled with node a bit in the past. Um, and so this time I've, uh, I've decided to dive a little bit deeper into node and, and not because I'm, uh, I'm sick of uh, PHP because I, I I will admit I have finally uh, come uh, to peace with PHP um, I've accepted that I've invested a ridiculous amount of time into PHP and that PHP despite all the pissing and moaning that I hear on the internet is actually still a very viable solution both in the present and in the future for building web applications it's still a total totally focused at the web um, even though you can do other things server-side with it but Um, I am now totally content to keep PHP as a major part of my programming toolkit. But I've decided to investigate Node, not because I feel that Node is the new hotness and that it's going to sweep uh, PHP off the side, but mainly because I feel like I need to um, not necessarily learn new programming languages, but learn new programming paradigms. And the um, event-driven, asynchronous nature of Node it's just something that I feel like I I need to learn and understand because I think um, in the end, it will end up making me um, a better programmer and perhaps um, lead me to create better stuff um, both in PHP and learn how to start approaching building applications, not from uh, a single tool perspective, but to say that, Hey, you know what, if we really want to build this thing up as say a service oriented architecture that, Node appears to be aiming to be uh, for writing network services. So stuff like APIs or other things where you need to have lots of concurrency going on uh, and you know, stuff like that, that I really feel it would be beneficial to me personally to understand uh, the event loop in a very good way and to also understand um, asynchronous with callbacks seven levels deep and how to um, save yourself from uh, that,
2: those kinds of situations.
1: Yes.
3: So, what, what, have you fooled around with with Node at all, Chris? Uh not really. I mean, I've used stuff that's like written in Node, so if that counts, then yeah, I'm a master. It doesn't count.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, what what is your thoughts on, you know, this this idea where I'm kind of where it's not so much that Node just happens to be the vehicle through which I'm trying to learn about um, callbacks, um, asynchronous programming, concurrency Like, what's your thought on uh, – I mean, um, have you done that kind of approach where you've, where you've picked a language not because of the language but because of the, the practices that it's encouraging?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I even did that a whole long time ago when I, like, picked up C++ just to try to learn what object-oriented programming was all about. Um, you know, I think, I think JavaScript is a hugely important language to, to know, Um, And I know Ed's written about this and probably talked about this before. Um, And that's that's certainly the case now as much as ever. And I think it'll stay the case. On the back end, there are so many different options. There's like a lot to know. Um, Whereas like JavaScript is like the language for, you know, client-side stuff. And Node kind of gives you the ability to take what you've learned there and kind of apply it to some of the server-side stuff. Um, in a way that, you know, people do some really neat stuff with um, with Node, and I think part of it's because, I guess similar to PHP, like JavaScript is a language of the web, so there's a lot of stuff that's just built in. And there's like a certain assumption that your context is web, and I think for the same reason that PHP has advantages over a lot of other server-side languages, um, you know, I think those start to disappear when you start to compare it to something like JavaScript. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I can dig that. I uh I haven't been doing much stuff with Node lately. Um but I think that's mainly because I've been doing a bunch of uh like Python and Flask stuff and then also I've been doing a bunch of like client-side stuff in with Backbone apps and things like that at work and then um work is so uh soul-crushing for me that I don't want to do anything after that. So, um <laughs> Uh, but it's, uh, but that's kind of what I've been focused on mostly. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm the kind of person that's always like the stuff that I need to work on sort of drives what I'm, what I'm learning about. Right. So I had to learn about like, you know, how am I going to do like Python, Flask development. How how do I do like a larger backbone application, things like that? So,
0: well, so. what do you think? Well, what do you think about Node, Ed? I mean, you you have a a, a ton of experience with JavaScript, and yeah. I feel kind of weird because I'm I'm coming to Node uh, through a different path than probably most of the people yeah. would use it. Because most of the people using Node are because oh, I, I taught myself or I learned JavaScript, so I can do stuff on the client side, yeah. and now I find out that I can use Node to do stuff. Uh, on the server. So, uh, you know, I, I I get the best of both words. I'm kind of coming at it where the vast majority of my JavaScript experience is cut and pasting and mangling um, jQuery right. samples. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm kind of coming at it from, I know PHP, so I kind of, I would like to think I have a pretty good understanding of server-side scripting stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just looking at Node as kind of a different way to accomplish server-side stuff.
1: Yeah, so... So my impression... So the reason why Node would be appealing to me is because I like JavaScript as a language. Um, I find it appealing. I feel like I have a pretty decent understanding of it. I like the functional nature of it. And I like that the core language itself is actually... Is really pretty small. So all of those things appeal to me, right? Um, So... I, Node itself is a little lower level than I'm, you're, I'm used to working with. Like it gives you you know HTTP interfaces, but it's pretty it's pretty low level stuff, right? Um, it's not on the level of like uh, even say the curl interface in PHP, which definitely smooths over a lot of stuff for you, or sort of similar things. Like Python has a requests library that is that you know it, it, your defaults are really it handles a bunch of stuff for you. You can change things, but it it handles a bunch of stuff for you. So, so node itself is kind of low level. And I, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of weird because I think a lot of JavaScript stuff isn't that way because it's wrapped in the browser and the browser has lots of APIs and niceties and things that it sort of does for you automatically. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that it's appealing and interesting. And I think that node sort of caught on because it, it was not just because it because i think it was it's lightweight and you can use it in a lot of different situations that's appealing to i think hobbyists and people who are into that kind of stuff and i think that's why it, it seemed like it got more popular than other i mean there have been plenty of other server side javascript implementations over the years um uh, most of them were java based um uh, but there had been plenty of them. I guess Rhino was probably the most popular. Yeah, that's the one I've heard right? of. The most most popular. Um and uh, but you know, none of them got particularly popular. Um, and I, you know, in the grand scheme, of things and and I think Node really kind of caught on because I think it appealed to hobbyists and people who like to noodle with stuff, and that, they they kind of got excited about that because it was simple to get to start building things that interaction with stuff quickly. You didn't need to have a JVM you didn't need to deal with that kind of stuff. And I think that I think that's one of the reasons it got pretty appealing. Um so I you know for me I the stuff that I ended up writing in Node, I tended not to want to write what, like make websites in it. <laughs> uh I tended to like writing um tools that I would probably run from the command line that would do different things, like you know, different kinds of processing stuff. Right, that's the kind. Of, that stuff gets interesting to me, um, or especially small tools that maybe they would do things like do data import and export that has to do HTTP stuff. Um, you know, there's lots of things to do stuff where like a lot of like. Um, JavaScript minification things and concatenation stuff ends up going over, uh, you, you use, end up using node because it's easy. It's a lot easier to install node and get it up and running and do stuff with it than it is to like install JVM and install Rhino and do all that stuff. So those are the kind of things I ended up writing in it. Um, I, uh, but there's some, de- there's some decent sort of, I guess you'd say full stack frameworks there. So you could certainly do stuff like that with it, and you could write full web things and stuff with it. But, um, you know, I guess it's it's kind of... if I think if you're... I think if you like JavaScript as a language, I think it's a good... It's not a bad choice, you know? Right? Um, but uh, it's kind of not where things have taken me lately, so I just haven't been dabbling with it as much.
2: Crickets?
0: No, I'm sorry. I'm just typing something to you. Um, yeah, I mean, essentially, I think, for example, I don't think I could see myself building a whole website using Node, but for sure creating, I like the idea that I have for a real real world side project is for the website that I do for, the, um, for that simulation baseball league that I'm in. It would be a, a good experience to uh, use Node to power an API for it and then rewrite some of the PHP stuff on the front end to talk to the API instead of talking directly to the database, just right. as an experiment on actually building something semi-useful with it.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's good at that. I, I mean, I think those are some areas of strength, uh, that it, it works with. Um, Chris, that's okay. We can handle that.
2: All right.
1: Um, testing async code. I mean, I don't even know. I don't, uh, I we can anticipate. skip that. I haven't
0: done, uh, I haven't done enough, uh, with node to even break out the um the the unit testing stuff, I have a little
1: bit of experience with it, and i it 's probably a, a topic we could discuss it more in more depth, but I did a little bit of that with like QUnit, unit, and I guess what it would do is it would basically would say, "Wait for response and then you would just you know wait for the response to come back, and then when the response comes back so that's when you test it, but otherwise it would mostly just pause right i think and I think you can do stuff that's more sophisticated than that, but Um, I also have
0: questions about how to do stuff like dependency injection in JavaScript I have no idea how that would work we don't worry about that it's my job to worry about shit
1: like that. I should get Searles back on here. That dude knows way more about this stuff than I do. Yes, we
0: should have him on again since he didn't really want to talk about what I wanted to talk about, but
1: that's okay. All right. Okay. Uh, so let's just talk about as- testing async code later because uh, that's not something. Yeah, we can do that on another episode. Uh, I don't know anything about Canadian soccer. Chris uh, Shiflet. do you know much about the Canadian soccer program?
3: Not a whole lot. I mean, the women did pretty well in the Olympics. Um and I think there's some controversy. They they would probably argue that they deserve to, to beat the U.S., um, but they didn't. And that's about all I know. <laughs> the
0: state of the Canadian soccer program is that the women are good and the men suck. And that's about all I really want to talk about, the Canadian soccer program. Yeah, uh, exactly. We haven't qualified for the World Cup since 1984, and I think that's an embarrassment.
1: That's not good. Um, yeah, so- not great.
0: So, so, they've, uh, so their problem is they keep running through coaches. Um, the coaches get here. They discover that the people who run the program are a bunch of dipshits. And so then they quit and they go work someplace else.
3: Is it a popular thing up there, though? Because, like, the U.S. team, the men's team is okay. We've actually got a couple of players that I would, I would consider to be, like, world class. Um, but on the whole, you know, we're just not as competitive as we would be you know, if the world wants to try to take us on in like basketball or any other sport that we kind of made up uh, on our own. So most of the good
0: Canadian players play uh, in, um, in MLS or um, a few of them play um, in the English premier league, but most of them, most of them are not starters for their club teams. And if they are starters, they're usually not playing in the, the top tier league. So I don't know. I mean, it's like, The problem is there's no place for really good, talented Canadian players to play at home because Canada's not big enough to support a good, um, thriving domestic league. So either they go play in MLS, and from watching Toronto FC play, the quality of MLS soccer is, in my opinion, just maybe one little notch above U.S. college soccer. So um, anybody who plays in MLS isn't really getting tested that hard they really need to go play overseas over in europe to get a real feel for what their skills are like so i mean i i would like to see canada get into the world cup again but things are really stacked they play in a really tough group and canada for for canada to make it everything has to go perfect i mean they're they did really well by basically i think they won their group they didn't win or they're up at the top of their current little qualifying group so they're going to move on to the next one for world cup qualifying but Canada has a habit of falling short um, at soccer and just not coming through when it really matters. You know, uh, The U.S. is really good, and uh, Mexico is usually really good. So any of the qualifying stuff, it's like if you're not the U.S. or Mexico, it's a real dogfight to, to qualify for any of the major international competition, team-level competitions.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's the U.S.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't get
2: me started on that. <laughs>
1: All right. Um I this should be short. Uh I put a couple other things there. I think we could skip, maybe talk about it another time. Although sometime Chris I'd be interested in talking with you about like work and family stuff and how, how having a new baby has impacted that, but maybe not right now. Uh do we have anything intelligent to say about a I I guess some jabbering about Zen Framework two versus Symphony two? I don't really care. Um, I can offer an opinion. Yes, i be interested
0: uh, to hear it. Um, I've uh, I've run through the uh, the tutorial that um, they have up for Zen Framework Two, and the thing that struck me about it was how very um, very um, explicit it is. Not like in how I talk and swear all the time, explicit, no. but kind of like they've for Zen Framework Two, they seem to have made a really conscious effort to not go with convention over configuration. They've made a really conscious effort to to make it very explicit that you have to define everything. And they're. Uh, I feel like they're working extremely hard to not um, have magic. And Symphony 2 always strikes me as there's a really large number of assumptions you have to make on how things speak to each other and how they go together. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that makes it so that you can create something, you can probably create something with Symfony 2 faster than you can with Zen Framework 2. But when you come to an area that the defaults for Symfony 2 don't work very well, um, you're in for a lot more work. Whereas Zen Framework 2 basically says from the beginning, we're going to make you explicitly define everything that you need to do so that there are no surprises, so that when you do need to do something different, it should be easier to figure it out.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I tend to dig that. Um, like, you know, Symphony 2, uh, you know, I, I haven't really messed with it that much. I messed with Symphony and wasn't a big fan of it, but mainly that was because it wasn't, I, I found it difficult to, to get comfortable with. Um, I felt like there was a pretty significant learning curve and I more and more, maybe just, I've become less and less interested in investing huge amounts of time and stuff but i really value things that i can pick up quickly and that are lightweight and uh so a a lot of like extraneous sort of um a lot of stuff could feel extraneous to me that probably matters to a lot of other people and does solve a lot of problems but i would rather have something that's really lightweight um, for doing web development. So, so
0: know, when you, uh, this is actually interesting. I have a question to ask you about that then. And when, when you talk about lightweight, do you feel that it's better for some of the magic and complex stuff to be hidden and that you're just given some good, solid info on how to accomplish a certain task or, or does explicitness matter to you? Do you like the idea that you can just, that there's shortcuts to get things done with certain tools, or do you really want to know how the thing is working in the background?
1: So I like to know how the thing is working in the back end raw. I like it so that the the I guess the the layers are shallow enough that I can kind of delve into that if I need to. Um, my comfort level when I'm adapting something new or I'm working with something new, like if I'm looking at a framework, is I'd really prefer to have something that was basically uh, a router <laughs> and then. Uh, Build on top of that router, right? Yeah, so, like,
3: kind of my my definition of lightweight tends to be like just give me a router and like tell me how you would prefer that I organize my files, mm-hmm. and then let me write the code. Um, you know, and make it really easy for people to have like little packages that work with that really well. Like the the whole Flask ecosystem seems pretty good.
1: Yeah, um, you, you know, fix. we've been using we've been using Flask a lot at work and. It, uh, I like that a lot. On the PHP side, I think Slim is kind of like that, too. Mm-hmm. I've liked Slim a lot. And I guess... So, so the thing is, I, I'm i sorry, I might cut you off here, but I mean, for me, it's it's like, I like, give me a router and then let me get comfortable with that. And then as I need more things, I will ask you if I need it.
2: <laughs> like, yeah. like,
1: if I need to... If I need some kind of uh, data, val- like input validation thing, I will say... Hey, um, what's a good input validation library that works nicely with this? And that—that's kind of what I'll do. Is I, 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 what I guess what I do I, I find is that I find things where it's like I have to learn a bunch of crap up front, and it's like, it's like I have to pick up a hundred pound backpack, and I and right when I'm learning it, I don't need ninety five pounds of that stuff. Like, and and now I just feel like I'm dealing with a bunch more crap than I I feel comfortable with but I might need it in the future. Just, I don't want to deal with it until I am ready. I'm at the point where I say, this is something I want. Um, I think a lot of frameworks try to anticipate what you're going to need. And to some extent, I can kind of dig that. But sometimes I think that they want to anticipate all of your needs in advance for as many people as they can possibly. And I think that I maybe that's what makes super popular frameworks. It doesn't how it isn't what I kinda like to work with. So So that's why, yeah, like I like something kinda like Flask, I like uh I like stuff like Slim or just you know, give me give me something that just routes URLs to methods and that's sort of like my base level of uh of web stuff.
0: No, I, I totally get that and I actually I think um that's a good approach too. I mean, that's not how I approach it, but I can see why um, that makes sense. Just give you the, whatever the building block is for getting an app done and then allow you the freedom to choose whatever solutions, or if they do offer you solutions, it should be as easy as possible to uh, bolt them on and not feel like you have to drag the whole thing with you.
1: Right. Um, So yeah, I, you know, so that's, I, I'm just not, I'm not super interested in it and, you know the the so i guess the other the the other thing is that the fact that people give a rat's ass about what other people are reusing is just utterly boring and maybe to,
0: to you it is ed but this is all about what i've talked i've been thinking about this concept a lot lately uh-huh. it's a tribal thing people want yep. to belong to a group so yep. people are search a lot of people search for an identity through the work that they do I mean, uh, clearly I've been working very hard on building up the grumpy programmer brand and identity to push my ideas about testing and other stuff. And that's really not much different than uh, someone looking to belong. They want to find some identity to latch on to online. So uh, aligning yourself with a particular framework or technology, or a subgroup within uh, a programming tool. It's just a natural thing that people want to find other people who are like them so they can talk to them and feel like they belong to something.
1: Yeah, maybe it's just the nature of human beings, you know, and there's not much to do about it. But I think that the stuff that I see does not really go along very well, I think, with critical thinking and, 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 uh, <laughs> And really trying to examine the reasons why we do stuff and whether they're productive or not, you know, on all levels. And you none of
0: none of us are as stupid as all of us, Ed. Yeah,
1: that's, <laughs> pretty, <laughs> that's a great. Yeah, that's pretty. That's really on. what that's
0: really what it comes down to.
1: Yeah. So I yeah, it just doesn't. This stuff doesn't do much for me. You know, whatever. Um. So we skipped a couple other things, but you know, one of the things that I guess maybe change uh, gears a little bit would be. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, Brooklyn beta, Chris, and, uh, I think one of the things that's, that's interesting that I would kind of, we, you know, we, we had a, a few, we had a, a while back, I think we were talking about, we, I think maybe we had the Brooklyn beta 2012 stuff had been announced and we kind of talked about it a little bit on the podcast and I was interested to hear about from you, Chris, on on this particular issue, that one of the things that can come up when you do, maybe this gets into tribalism and with human beings and stuff, is you know, Brooklyn Beta has become very popular, and I mean, I know enough about like uh, how many people were trying to get tickets and stuff that like was it you know demand was out was outstripping uh, availability like by like ten times or something like that, right? Yeah, I think
3: it was like fifteen to one,
1: right, and so we we did you know I did like a lottery for that, and I think I might even wrote some code to randomly pick things or something like that, right, or to help out with that and and i and i I think there's a tendency, and I know because i I know I've been guilty of this too uh is and is that like when you see something that a lot of people are excited about and um but not a lot of people get to go to um it sort of starts to feel i think my natural tendency, a lot of times, especially because if a lot of people like it, it must be stupid, is that, um, <laughs> is to feel like, well, it's sort of like a cool kids club or whatever. And I think, I think part of it is maybe just kind of a little bit of jealousy. And, and, um, but I think, you know, sometimes I think it's, I think there's, a a natural tendency to kind of feel like, well, we're it's it's sort of exclusionary and you get your it's like it kind of becomes sort of an elitist thing now i know like i know you guys i know you chris and i know cameron and i i feel pretty confident that that has never been your intent with this but i'm curious about like how you guys have have struggled with that a little bit in terms of organizing an event and wanting to make it open and available to people and like how you've dealt with maybe sort of perception of that and also kinds of things you've been done to been doing to combat that.
3: Sure. I mean, um, obviously that wasn't a problem our first year because we didn't have a conference when we were planning it. It was, it was a new idea. No one had ever heard of it. So, you know, it kind of felt like the opposite. Like we were, we, uh, I think for everyone that came to our conference the first year, we probably sent them like no fewer than 10 emails. Uh, Basically asking them to give us money (laughs) because, you know, we needed to charge like a little bit of something just to try to break even, uh, which we didn't do. Um, but you know, we got close enough that we didn't go totally broke personally. Um, and that was like, you know, that felt a little bit awkward. Um, partly because, um, I mean, when you invite a bunch of people to come to your conference immediately, like, and we even thought about doing this, um, but, even though we didn't, people still thought of it as like some kind of like invite only affair. Um and the truth is, even that first year, we did sell some tickets. Um in fact, I think almost fifty percent of the conference was
1: uh people that bought tickets. Well and you, you had you had like workshops, I remember, or something
3: like yeah, that. Yeah, and you know, and we were terrified that that no one was gonna like buy any of that stuff because you know, we were pretty underwater on the budget. So, you know, like we were we were just happy that we were just happy it sold out the first year, you know, we couldn't couldn't have been more surprised and and grateful. So, you know, that it wasn't a problem at all then. So it wasn't really until I guess last year that, you know, we got any kind of sense of, of that sentiment, you know, outside of the the people that were there, you know, that it was somehow some kind of like exclusive club. Right. I think, you know, part of that is just the history too. Like the people, on us the first year especially like i always use as our example like you know lachlan and lisa who like came from australia <laughs> to like go to this conference that had no reputation like wasn't necessarily going to be worth coming to and it's like really expensive for them to like take time off of work fly halfway around the world get a hotel and all that kind of shit i think we gave them their tickets free you know because we were like you know that's like the least we could do
1: yeah i remember they. But they held the record for, or at least from there, for longest trip, right?
3: Yeah, I think so. And and, you know, like they just brought so much positivity and good vibes, and they're just awesome people. So, like, you know, there are like there are quite a few people like that who, when it came time to do it again, because we knew that it was probably going to sell out, we wanted to make sure and like give early invitations to like those types of people. Um, And of course, like I mean, you know, this Ed, like among our friends, like. Some of them are, like, borderline internet celebrities or whatever. Oh, yeah, right. And it's, it's pretty easy for, if you have a group of, like, 250 people, even if only, like, 10 to 20 of them are, are considered, like, internet celebrities, mm-hmm. it's just really easy to get the impression that, like, that whole huge group of people are. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, there are a bunch of nobodies in there that, you know, I think are really just excellent people and, you know, are awesome to meet and hang out with and stuff. Yes, but, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, I think last year was the first time that came up, and we didn't – I don't know that we even handled it that well, selling tickets and all that kind of stuff, because, you know, we thought we were going to be clever by splitting it into two because the first year, you know, even though it was a brand-new conference, people did email us, you know, like really bummed that they, you know, didn't get tickets before it sold out. And, you know, it took took a while to sell out. Like, it took at least 30 minutes. So it's not like (laughs) –
0: <laughs> you have
3: like, oh man, oh, I'm like, sorry. Keep paying attention. You could definitely get a ticket. But what happened is people had like they they were in a meeting or something or like you know whatever. Like things came up and like people were really bombed. Someone said they were at a funeral. Oh, you gosh. know that's just like really hard to read. You're just like, oh man. Rough. Uh, yeah. Jeez. So
0: we were like, you, oh, you mean you, you mean you don't just delete that email right away? You're like trolling for tickets, delete it and go on to the next one. Whatever, <laughs> no man.
3: Those things really tug at your heartstrings. Um, well, you have to
1: have a heart. I guess that's probably my point. <laughs> yeah, that's the, That's why you don't understand.
3: Yeah. So last year, we thought we'd be clever and just, you know, like, let's do this on two different days. Um, I think, you know, n- neither Cameron or I, like, tweeted about tickets at all. Is, and, you know, honestly, Twitter is the only way I know to like market shit. Uh, so, you know, we try to be really quiet about it. Only... Like, send an email to the people that were subscribed to the mailing list, um, you know, kind of ask people to not make a big deal about what's happening. Um, and then that just didn't go very well at all because it sold out, like, kind of immediately because the, the quantity of tickets was divided in half because we did on two different days. So, like, on that first day, you know, it was like all the people that want tickets were there, but only half of the tickets were there. I don't know if I'm making sense,
1: but yeah, no, I can dig you. was like
3: obviously going to sell out like in a flash um, because of that particular problem. Um, But we didn't, we didn't know it was going to sell out. I mean, we thought it would sell out like maybe the first year, you know, like everybody that was there at the time and was paying attention would definitely get in. Um, But it didn't work that way at all. And I think Eventbrite really let us down too in ways that I didn't anticipate, like When you first get into the event page, like after you lift the password or whatever, and people like go in there, you know, they would see like 100 tickets still left or something and feel like, you know, like, yeah, I'm in. Right. And then they'd like select, you know, one or whatever from the little drop down of, of tickets. And we had two ticket types. So, you know, they're like really in trouble if they had to like read the descriptions or something. Yeah. And they click the button to buy and it says it's all sold out. And that just feels like shenanigans, you know, it just feels like something, you know, something's going on that's not right. right. Um, so that was a bummer, you know? And so this year we just didn't even know what to do, uh, about selling tickets in a way that seemed fair. So we, we did that lottery thing and that was the first, uh, that was the most eye opening thing for me. And Ed, you kind of know more of the backstory here because you saw mm-hmm. all the stuff. But I mean, there were like, there's several thousand people that signed up um, wanting a ticket to this like super tiny conference of like 250 people. Right. And um, I,
0: I thought the lottery was an awesome idea.
3: Oh yeah. Oh good. Yeah. See, we, there's like, we've had this like real like hard time trying to like balance. Like I really want to be humble in everything that I do. And so like acting like you think something's going to sell out feels very arrogant to me. Um, and you know, a lottery feels, a lottery feels a little bit arrogant. Um, I just couldn't think of like a better thing to do.
1: Well, I th- uh, th- yeah, I think it was practical. I mean, it, this I, I think it, you had to expect that your demand was going to outstrip, you know? So,
3: yeah. But anyway, like the real eye opening thing was like what the discrepancy was. And that's why <laughs> we're, we're trying to just now, I guess, for the first time, do something about, you know, the problem that you brought up, Ed. Um, and that's, like, we've we've dubbed it Beyond Beta. But it's basically, like, we're just trying to organize all kinds of other, like, events and activities and open houses and stuff like that all around Brooklyn and even greater, like, New York City uh, during that same week. Hoping that, you know, people will come anyway because, like, the speakers are really good at Brooklyn Beta. Like, I think they've, you know, they've been pretty interesting because they're not they're not just us talking to ourselves. You know, we bring in people from other industries and stuff, but I think what makes people like it is just, we've always focused on being a friendly conference. And so when you do that, like friendly people tend to show up and people like to hang out with friendly people. So, you know, I think it's the people that made everybody really love it. And there's no reason why you can't just come to Brooklyn that week anyway, and still have a really good time. And I think really like with all the, all the effort we've put into um, beyond beta there's, there's like enough stuff to keep you busy. Like that whole week for sure. Uh, I think there's like, you're going to like miss a whole bunch of stuff that you might like want to do. And hopefully even some of the people at the conference are like a little bit disappointed that, you know, they're stuck at this conference instead of going all this other cool shit. Right. Um, But really, you know, it's just, that's our attempt to make it feel more inclusive. Because I don't, I don't like it feeling like an exclusive thing or whatever. But I also, I don't, I don't trust myself, and I'm sure Cameron agrees. And just our whole team, you know, like we don't trust ourselves to make like a really big conference that's any good. <laughs>
1: right, I dig you.
0: So here's the here's the thing that I mean. I know I I typed this in the IRC channel, and, and I thought that it was kind of avoiding the fact where I acted like an asshole about Brooklyn Beta. So the the thing that I wanted to talk about is the thing that. That rubbed me the wrong way about Brooklyn Beta. It's not that I felt it was um, not that I felt that it was trying to be an exclusive or invite only thing. The thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way was the feeling that um, our uh, attendees and stuff get to have a say over who gets to appear at the conference. And so I was wondering about how you decided that. You guys were going to, um, I, hate, I, I hate using this word because it feels really douchey, curating. I know a lot of people use it. I don't like that word. I don't know if there's a good alternative to it, but I don't like that word because I think uh, it sounds, I, I, to me, it sounds douchey. So um, I was wondering what made you guys decide to the format of the conference where you guys were going to, um, that you guys, the people who organized the conference, were going to not solicit outside people to speak, that you guys were going to go and pick Who is speaking? Uh,
3: Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's pretty simple if you understand what Brooklyn Beta is about. Like, it's not, it's not for our community to, like, speak to ourselves. Um, We try to get people that we don't know already who are, like, experts in fields that we're not familiar with to come and tell us about problems that are, you know, things that we don't necessarily think about every day. and. Like, there's no way, like, we can't have a CFP and have any of those speakers, like, respond. I mean, I think, like, the approach we take is actually, like, far more humble than a CFP. Because a CFP assumes that, like, you know, people are going to hear about it and, like, want to, like, want to ask you to speak at your event. Whereas, like, you know, our our whole approach with, like, attendees is, like, we definitely apply that to, to speakers, too, which is that we reach out and beg awesome people to like come, uh, speak at our conference, you know, and like, you know, last year we got really lucky with, you know, some, some people no one had ever heard of, um, who I thought were incredible speakers like, um, Todd Park, who's, you know, now will probably be impossible to ever get for a conference again, but he's now the CTO of the United States. So he's like in this really, you know, high ranking position works at the white house and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, he was an incredible speaker and uh, at the time was in charge of the Department of Health and Human Services. And they have like all kinds of needs um, and they're trying to help meet those by making a lot of really good data that they have like open. And by open, you know, he realizes that it doesn't just mean like, you know, having some API somewhere that's like poorly documented or like isn't very useful, but like trying to, like, really sort of shepherd a lot of these um, these APIs and stuff to sort of help people that might be interested in those problems actually work on them from outside of government. Um, so, you know, having that kind of person speak to this audience um, is something that's, like, very core to the idea of what the conference is about. We want, um, you know, we want to make a difference, I guess, is, a, like, a really short way to, to talk about it. Um, and we put... You know, in our audience, it's mostly like people that might, you know, speak at some other conference. Because, as you guys know, like most of our conferences are just us talking to each other, um, which I think is totally fine. And I've I've had a lot of fun over the years going to those types of conferences, learned a lot, met a lot of really cool people. Um, but that's just not what this particular one's about. Um, and I think I can say with like a lot of certainty that. One hundred percent of the Brooklyn Beta speakers to date would never have responded to a CFP, Uh like not in a million years.
1: Yeah, I can dig that. I think you're right, having based on that.
2: Um, yeah. So, Chris, what do you think?
0: Uh, What do I think? Um, I think uh, if the aim is to do a different style of conference, then yeah, for sure. I was just really, I was just really curious as to as to why Chris and Cameron decided to run the thing this way. I mean, that's that's how it It sounds like they're they're staying true to it and they're doing they're doing it exactly the way that they want to do it.
1: Yeah, I for me as an attendee, i I uh, have found it have found both kinds of things valuable. Um, but it's definitely the case that I think, uh, one of the things that I like about the speakers of Brooklyn beta, which I do not think is the entire conference. And is it's not really necessarily the, the one reason you go right. It, in fact, I would say it's actively not the one reason you go, but that the speakers there, um, uh, give me usually a much better perspective on the kinds of things that I can do with, um, my, uh, knowledge and skills. Right. Um, that, that otherwise I, 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 it gives me a lot of perspective that I wouldn't have otherwise about being able to make impacts in people's lives. And, uh, and typically uh, I don't get much of that from sort of traditional dev conferences with CFPs and stuff like that. That doesn't mean they're bad. <laughs> it's just different, right? Right. Yeah, I mean
3: that's a you know and that's a big thing that we're trying to do. It's funny, like whenever we started organizing last year's conference, um, I wrote down one word on in like the notebook that we were we were using to like start to brainstorm like what our narrative was and stuff, and the word was uncomfortable. And I just want to make every attendee like really uncomfortable with like basically like what they had chosen to do with their life and sort of like almost like highlight that you have this like incredible responsibility. If you have web skills, they like the web has so much potential that we have not tapped yet. Um, and I think we just get really complacent just, you know, like even building apps for ourselves and stuff like that. Like it's, it's kind of frustrating sometimes to see what the startup community comes up with for like apps when it's just like, we're just, you know, we're serving ourselves. And again, it's just like conferences where we speak to ourselves. Like I don't see any problem with that. I love a lot of the apps that are made for us because I'm one of us and I love apps that are, you know, that do things that I need, but there are so many people out there that have needs too, that are not being met like at all. So it's not that you have to like make, a better product than something else. There's just like, there's not even any competition. There's such, you know, starvation for some of the talents that we have. And, um, you know, last year we had one speaker that I felt, I guess, most closely embodied, like kind of the point of the conference a little bit was um, Victoria Harrison from Charity Water. And she's just a web designer, if you want to think of web design as being just a thing. Um, but, Um, you know, in her words, she used to just sell lipstick. Uh, and I think especially in the design community, that's a big problem is that such a disproportionate number of them, um, are in advertising and advertising is not that bad, but isn't it kind of a bummer that so much of our talent is like consumed in that one thing. Um, and she encountered this quote from some other designer that I can't remember because I'm not very good at knowing all the famous designers Um, but it said something to the effect of the, the same skills that can be used to fuel the mass overconsumption in the world can also be used to heal it. And that's like one of those very philosophical things. Um, but for her, it like completely changed her outlook on life. Um, and she, you know, stopped doing all the advertising stuff and went on, um, you know, to do charity water. Um, and her husband, Scott's the founder of that. and using just skills that other good web designers have, like the power of brand, a good website and stuff like that, and convincing people to like, you know, spend money on something. Now there are like millions of people in the world that have access to clean drinking water that didn't before.
0: It's very much like that idea. I've seen the, I've seen a, a similar type of quote and I can't remember who initially did it, but the guy was saying he was saddened to see that some of the best um, programming minds of his generation are devoting their energies on trying to figure out how to get people to click on ads. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I, I understand it, it is. Um, it is good if you can find ways to uh, apply your, your skills that you've learned in building things for the internet into non-traditional um, things. I mean, I have talked with people. I was talking about this um today this past weekend was the playoffs for the slow pitch league where after seven years all i can still fucking do is hit ground balls um and people ask me about the work that i do a few of them have seen my web page and some of them stumbled across the uh um the blog post that i did about monkey patching stuff and so they're asking me what the hell i was even talking about so it was interesting that i was that i was explained to them about some of that stuff how people a, a lot of a lot of the really top notch talent has been swallowed up by companies that are advertising driven. So people are trying to figure out how to get people to click on ads when there are so many other interesting and non traditional internet things that they could be working on instead. I mean, I can even think within the PHP community itself how many top talented people have been swallowed up by Facebook um, and Google. And we don't hear from them anymore. We don't hear about anything that we don't hear from them online anyway, about anything that they're working on. And if people are friends with them uh, outside of the internet, friends with them in real life, I'm sure they keep talking to them, but we never hear from anything from them anymore. We have no idea what they're doing or what they've been up to.
3: Yeah. And one of the things like I would pick out from what you were talking about is, is this idea that they're like, you know, non-traditional, like non-internet kind of industries or whatever. And I almost feel like, Um, the internet and the web more specifically like has a role to play like across the board um, because it's, it's almost like it's an extension of humanity. And there's so much that you can do with the web. That's not um, that's not maybe what even like everything that I can imagine right now Um, because through the power of like design and brand and a lot of the skills that we have, you know, as developers, there's, there's a lot that you can do to like, even just like, persuade human beings to do things um that you know the sky is really the limit um and i think it's i think it's easy for us to kind of like almost get down on ourselves in terms of like well you know these are the skills that i have or like well i really like php everybody on hacker news hates on it but uh you know fuck those guys i'm just gonna keep keep on keeping on and like none of that matters at all in the big picture like you have the power to, like, make a website work. That's an incredible skill, um, you know. And I think over the next, like, few decades, that skill is going to start to feel kind of like reading and writing used to feel, you know, hundreds of years ago or something. Um, and one of the things that we hope to do with the conference, I think, is to, to make people feel the burden of responsibility for having those skills. Um, and that was the main thing to sort of loop back to that word uncomfortable is, um, you know, we don't just want to like talk to ourselves and have people help you improve the skills that you already have. We want to show you and remind you of like what you're capable of doing now and, and highlight, you know, areas that could really use your help.
0: All right. Chef, you win. You make me feel bad for talking shit about your conference. <laughs> you, you win. Nice.
1: (laughs) See, you feel... That's the closest
0: people in this channel will ever hear me to making an apology, so relish it. You
1: feel feel (laughs) uncomfortable now.
0: I feel slightly uncomfortable. I also, though, I will admit, I do have an excuse to never go to um, Brooklyn Beta in its current incarnation. It's always right near my wife's birthday, and so there are severe punishments for not being around for that. So, Uh,
3: Yeah, man. Family first. There's a question I think Ed wanted to skip about... Family balance. Well, them. it's up to you guys.
0: I'm willing to talk about it, but I know uh, you, you, the two of you, might not necessarily have the same amount of time to
3: chat about the stuff that I do. Well, my uh, family's out of town right now, actually, so I, lucky to I have more time out. than Ed.
1: Yeah, let's give it ten minutes.
3: <laughs> ten minutes. All right. <laughs> okay. All
0: right. So, so yeah, one of the questions um, I get all the time too is, how do I manage to do all the things that I do? So when I sit down and start actually listing. The summertime is the busiest time for me from May until you know just recently, because I have the day job, plus I play um, slow pitch at least once a week, sometimes twice, plus this podcast, plus the um, simulation baseball league thing that I've been involved with for 16 years, um, plus writing books, uh, doing courses and all sorts of stuff. Um, And all the same time, I am married. I've been married for 14 years. I have two kids. I still find time to do stuff with them, although maybe not exactly um, the amount of time that I would like. Um, But I just find, and I have people say to me that I'm one of the busiest people that they know. And um, to be honest, I don't feel like I'm so busy. Um, I just feel like I plan everything that I always make sure I use a calendar. I write shit down. I, I plan two to three weeks in advance to make sure that all the things I want to do, I actually have time for, and I will just brutally not commit to things. If I feel um, that it's not going to fit into my schedule, I have no problem saying no um, to doing things, uh, whether that's regard, whether that's work, whether that's side things, whether that's whatever things not related to sitting in front of my computer. So Um, I find just by being ruthless about my time and just saying, look, there's all these things I want to do. I look at a calendar, I look at a schedule and figure out how to get it done. And the things that I can get done, I commit to and everything else I don't worry about. So, I mean, what, what's your thoughts
3: on that stuff? Well, before, before we move on from you, um, like how, how well do you feel like you're doing? Like, is there, are there improvements that you would want to make in like sort of your work-life balance? Um that you're going for? Do you like, do you feel like you've nailed it and we should just try to like learn from your experience or somewhere? (laughs) Well,
0: well, um, I think the, I think my system works for me because I work from home. Uh, Uh, I think if, I I think if I, I, I think I don't miss out on as much of the family stuff as others do simply because I am working from home all the time. I've worked from home for the past almost six years so that I find that really helps me um, be able to do the stuff outside of my job because I'm here for my kids. I'm able to go pick them up from school. I'm there in the mornings when they go off. I'm there when they come home. I'm able to you know, make sure dinner and all the other stuff that, and the activities that they have to do um, fit into the schedule and I get them done. So I think the big thing for me, fitting in everything that I do, is that I'm at home already. So that, I mean, I used to have – I've talked about this endlessly – is that I used to have a 90-minute commute in and a two-hour commute home. Yeah, so that, yeah. was, that was two and a half, uh, three, sometimes four hours of my day shot that I just couldn't get back um, and just there was nothing else to do but just sit there and wait. So um, I find for me, working from home was the key that unlocked my ability to do all the things um, I really wanted to do
2: but had to say no to. Yeah.
3: Well, that sounds pretty good. I mean, um, for me, um, you know, my, my daughter's really young, so that's like a facet that you guys are more experienced with. Um, but I, I tried to like, basically at that moment, tried to set a bunch of ground rules for myself um, that also helped to make like my schedule really clear to, to my colleagues and stuff. And one of those is I try to leave the office really close to 5 p.m. You know, that often slips by 30 minutes or more. Um, But generally, I try to be really, really good and strict about that time, um, just leaving. And then I'm completely unavailable until um, 8 o'clock, which hopefully by then uh, she's asleep. And that's helped because, you know, for me, that time's really important now because that's my only time um, with my daughter cause I'm gone all day. Um, you know, so that's, that's like, makes, makes all those minutes like matter a whole lot. So, you know, slipping from five to five fifteen even feels like a pretty big deal. Like it needs to be something really important that I'm working on, um, to make that sacrifice. And I, I think of it as a sacrifice time that that schedule slips. And I think, I think I make that schedule known. I'd be curious if Ed even knows about that particular schedule. Um, I did not. Okay, so so not now
0: you know asshole. So respect his family. <laughs> maybe,
3: you know, maybe known as well as I should. Um, but another is like I'm also pretty protective of my weekends, um, and our weekends are super busy because basically every waking hour um, for my daughter, we're out and about doing something. You know, we go to museums, we go to the zoo, we go to the botanical gardens, we go to the park you know, we, we do stuff anytime that she's not napping. There are like two big chunks of time for that. So, you know, I think between those two things, like I feel pretty good about that stuff. And, you know, because my work time is less and I'm, you know, my ambition hasn't waned at all. So I'm, I've always been more ambitious than I have the talent to back up. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way too. So, you know, I have to like, I've always just had to like try to work hard to make up for my, Um, you know, where, where I lack basically, um, now I just have to be much more efficient. And I think, you know, I think my working hours are just much better now and I get more done because I have to, and that's, that's been good for me in a lot of ways. Um, even the schedule as brutal as it is, you know, waking up super early and stuff like that, um, I think has been good for me, um, on the whole.
0: Yeah, right. I re- yeah, I really I really don't think I could I I really don't think I could do all the stuff that I that I do if if I didn't work from home because I would be missing out. I mean, I remember I used to leave my house at seven a.m. and I would get home at seven p.m. and I would have basically just enough time to talk to my kids before it was bedtime for them, and then I had to have some dinner and deal with all the other stuff. So yeah, f- for me working from um, from home is the is is the thing that lets me get all the stuff done that I want to do. And if, if I didn't have that, uh, if I if I wasn't working from home, I, I I don't think I'd be here right now talking about all this stuff because I just that those four hours uh, that I was missing by commuting um, turned in from dead time to time where I really um, where I really gets stuff done. And I'm kind of the same way as like what Chris talks about uh, with weekends. Um, weekends tend to be a time when I can't really commit to do much of anything until like Sunday at this time from 9 PM onwards, because I have, I mean, I'm doing stuff with my kids and as they get older, the amount of activities that they do, it's, it's not changing. They're still doing stuff and it requires driving people around and paying attention to the things that they want to do and making sure that you're, that you're there, that you're actually there and uh, doing stuff with them. I mean, I think, I think people would, would laugh at the, uh, the picture of uh, of me uh, being the doting father and doing stuff with his kids. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's ridiculous.
0: What,
3: um, what do you guys think yeah. about like um like four day work weeks and some like basically like not the forty hour kind of work week that's pretty standard, but other other adaptations and stuff that maybe like maybe people in our industry because we have more flexibility could be experimenting with.
0: Uh, I like the idea of alternative um, schedules, but. I think the truth is uh, there's a humongous um, lack of trust between people who run businesses and people who work for them and that um, that they just would not trust people to get their work done um, with any kind of alternative schedule. I mean, half the, I mean, I think the, the, the vast aversion to companies to allowing telecommuting is um, Fear that people are screwing around instead of actually getting um, their work done. I can only speak for me. I have been working from home than I ever was when I worked in an office setting. I I hate cubeland. I hate it with a passion. I even tell my new I like to call him my babysitter, not my boss at my new job. Um, that I hate cubes and I'm never moving close enough that I can work in the office all the time. So um, for for me, I just can't get stuff done in um, a traditional. Um, in the traditional uh, work environment, the uh, the startup environment with open tables and everyone kibbitsing all the time, I would just start um, hitting people in the head with a baseball bat to shut the hell up so I can get so I can think about getting some work done. So um, uh, I, I like the idea of of, of four hour uh, work weeks, but just I think for the most part, um, only really uh, only really enlightened uh, companies that um, understand how people work on things and understanding the needs of the people that work for them are going to agree to that. The rest of them will be just like your butt has to be in a seat from nine to five. And if you want to work remotely, or if you want to work an alternative schedule, you need to go work someplace else.
3: Yeah. You know, what's interesting about what you bring up there is, um, it reminds me of this quote that I can't remember. So I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the spirit of it, uh, from Paul Graham. And he said something that I thought was really smart. Um, and he totally just nailed, like, a thing that I used to do. Um, and that's that he says one of the worst things you can do for, like, your own morale and productivity and all kinds of other stuff is what he calls fake work. And that's where you're, you just can't work at that moment. Like, your mind's really spent. You, you, you kind of need to, like, go for a walk or something. But due to your environment and certain expectations, you feel this pressure to, like, sort of sit at your desk and pretend to work. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I had, to go,
0: yeah, I had to go through that my last two weeks at my job at Kaplan, fake work, pretending to work because there was nothing for me to do because I was moving on. And I basically
3: did ask them to like send me packing early, but they wouldn't even agree to that. So, yeah. So, so what he says is like, um, you know, you're not, you're not refreshing yourself to be able to actually work again. Um it's as draining as real work, but you're not being productive. It's like just the worst. Oh, awesome. Uh somebody linked us to that in IRC. Um oh, it's like a huge blog post. That's why I can't remember exactly what he said. I feel better. (laughs) (laughs) So we can link to that in the show notes or something, right? You got it. I got it. Awesome. Ed's in the case. All over. Cool. Oh, I also had one other thing I want to bring up that we can link to in the show notes, and that's just like a a really nice post that uh, my colleague and friend John Tan uh, wrote, like this week, on on uh, sort of the whole work family balance thing. Um, it's just a couple of paragraphs. It's really short, uh, but I thought it was nice.
0: Oh, I read it. I read it too. Uh, I think I saw it linked. I mean, I don't. I can't remember if I follow him uh, on Twitter, but I think uh, somebody retweeted it. And I thought it was really poignant too. I thought it was really good. I mean, it's a whole thing. You've got a family, and you always have to balance the job with the family. And uh, I think many places attempt to make you feel guilty about putting your family um, before the job. Yep, yeah. and I-, I think, and I think a lot of employers uh, know that they're doing it, and they just don't care.
1: Oh yeah, well, I mean, it's it depends on the organization, but I think I kind of feel like as organizations get larger, uh, the tendency is uh, to become more. Uh, desirous of, to, to basically compete for your time and feel like, you know, and try to take everything they can get, right? And it doesn't happen everywhere, but it does happen a lot of places. And I think a lot of folks, when they um, when they are young and have lots and lots of free time, and they don't have as many people depending on them, uh, they allow themselves to get um, to work uh, ridiculous hours and spend tons of time on that kind of stuff. And then, uh, that becomes kind of an expectation. Um, and I think it's kind of natural. I mean, even at, at at our work, which I think is really, really, really understanding about that stuff. Um, sometimes it's hard when I, you know, some of the guys who don't maybe, uh, have a family or what have you, (laughs) and they're, they're working like, you know, till nine or ten at night, and I'm like, "I, dude, I can't do that, right?" You know. Yeah. And you sort of, you sort of like, maybe I'm supposed to do this, and I don't know. And, and you know, it's it's always been fine. Uh, you know, no one really, no one, people don't expect you at our place, but, but there, I definitely hear horror stories. I've been lucky to miss that for the most part, but I definitely hear horror stories about places that essentially expect you to work long hours, and or they'll say that it's a startup environment, so. Uh, expect to work long hours and you'll get snacks and, you know, that free snacks, uh, don't make up for it. Right. Uh, yeah.
3: free I mean, is never free. Either,
1: right. No, I mean, they're paying for it one way or another. It doesn't, it's not magic. Right. It doesn't. you know, float out of the air. Um, you uh, know, all that stuff adds up and, and, you know, all of those things, those sort of freebie things, they're all designed to keep you at work. Right. Yep. And, um, I think, you know, the best, you know, if they actually want you to be happier and, and to maybe be more productive when you're there and stuff like that, they tell you to get the hell out. Um, you know, yeah, they come to
0: your, they come to your desk at like six thirty and say, what the hell are you still you doing need, here? Yeah, go you home. You need, you need to go home already. Yeah. Right.
1: Let's not have all your parties there and like, like don't bring in beer and don't you get away. Right. And, and, uh, I think that's not the tendency. Um, and I, I wish it were more like that because, but I, I think a lot of that has to do with, um, you get you want to get young and uh, people who don't have a lot of ties and use up their energy while they still have that right, and while while it's not, uh, while you kind of can get to it, maybe they don't know better. Um, uh, that, that sounds a little sinister, but I think there's something to that.
3: There's another interesting like balance that happens there, though. That I don't think people are necessarily that. Conscious of, um, I think the first person that brought this up to me was uh, Cameron, um, and he said, "You know, they're they're just like web savvy is a thing and life savvy is a thing, and it just tends to be that the longer you've been around, the more life savvy you are, um, and the people who are the most web savvy or, you know, by your description, Ed, kind of like startup savvy or, you know, like can work these long hours, fit in that." like they're not necessarily the people who are the best at tackling like the hard problems that like really need solving. They might make the best, you know, next Instagram or something, which is totally fine as a product, but you know, they're less likely to to solve meaningful problems. You know, really it's like old farts like us that are more likely to have <laughs> the world savvy that's that's necessary to kind of like even think about some of the problems that need solving in the world. And to, to, you know, to have the, I guess, ambition almost to go after some of those um, and and not necessarily the ones that seem more sexy and exciting because all of our friends are into them.
1: Yeah, right.
3: Uh,
0: I know I sometimes feel like the old man of the Internet at 41 trying to keep uh, keep the energy up and keep uh, keep plugging away at the with the same intensity that I did when I was younger.
1: Just keep pounding away on that crystal meth, you'll be all right. <laughs> you know, it's-
0: well, I, well, I can't anymore because the fucking guy across the street doesn't uh, doesn't not not baking it in his basement. Oh, yeah, your
1: source, right up. No,
0: no did I did. I, I tweeted about this. I can. Oh yeah, that, the guy's back in t- back. I oh. saw him. Uh, oh, he's back uh, in town. He's. It looks like he grew his hair out and and uh, got a little uh, Lincoln chin strap while he was uh, uh, while he was locked up.
1: Oh well, that's nice that he moved back. That's cool.
0: Jack <laughs> says, "I sold my soul back in the 1600s." Yeah,
1: <laughs> now when I came over with Columbus, I gave it all up. Yep, definitely. Well, I think this might be a good time to uh, call it a call it a day. I think it was a pretty good, uh, pretty good talk here.
0: So thanks for f- making me feel like an asshole, Chris. It was good.
3: <laughs> I'm sorry about that part. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, we didn't. T- I, I didn't don't think th- mean to. <laughs> I don't think we talked about our fine sponsor
0: uh engine yard that's right i've heard of them engine yard uh fine purveyors of platform as a service i saw recently related to our node talks that they had some awesome info on how to get node apps up and running on their infrastructure
1: oh yeah i think that's a new thing that they're.
0: that's a fairly recent thing but yes
1: engine yard fine purveyors of platform as
0: a service one of the trailblazers uh and they also were smart enough to acquire the uh folks oh very nice jock Um, acquire the folks behind orchestra.io. So if you have a PHP app and you wanted to find a relatively easy way to get it running uh, up in the cloud since I'm now promoting myself as a cloud worker not remote, cloud worker get your stuff working in the cloud uh, you should check them out orchestra.io I know that when I had fun at uh, PHP Tech with my little sample app with Daniel uh, Daniel Kuzno, we were able to bring their shitty infrastructure to its knees with our demands for uh, updating things uh, within a minute or less, so it was not up to the task but I'm sure it's much better now So thanks for the money, suckers. It's already spent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, way to nail down that sponsorship.
0: It's all good, bro. If not them, someone else will be happy
1: to give us money to talk shit about them. (laughs) Yeah, right on. All right, well, uh, I'm, I'm feeling good. Thanks for coming on, Chris. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Chris. This was
3: awesome.
1: Yeah, thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Definitely. All
0: right. So this has been the 19th episode of the Development Hell podcast. As always, you can find us online at uh, devhell.info. You can find us on Twitter as dev underscore hell. Uh, as always, you can find me, Grumpy Programmer, without a U, on Twitter. You can find Ed as Funkatron with a U. As always, please check out our past uh, episodes via the website. We absolutely adore feedback. Uh, we'd love you to rate the podcast as well to let us know what you like, uh, but we're clearly going to ignore the things that you don't like. So thanks again. Thanks to the people in IRC for giving us some, uh, some questions and inspirational quotes and for always making me realize what a raging lunatic that I am. So thanks again, and we'll talk to everybody pretty soon. Bye, Bye, Internet. Bye, Internet.